Section 7 of The Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The Elements of Botany by William Ruschenberger. Lesson 5. Development and Functions of Flowers. Flora's Calendar. Flora's Clock. Fertilization of Flowers. Fruit. Epicarp. Mesocarp. Endocarp. Carpels. Classification of Fruits. Seeds. Their Structure. Embryo. Cotyledons. Germination. Of the Development and Function of Flowers. Flowers are formed in certain plants long before they appear externally. In the palms, for example, they remain concealed a year or even several years before they show themselves. They first appear in the form of a bud, which is generally a little larger than the buds of the leaves, and for a certain time their different constituent parts remain contracted. They are then designated under the name of flower-bud. Finally, when they approach a little nearer to the term of their growth, they expand or blow, and it is to this phenomenon that we ordinarily apply the name of inflorescence or flowering of plants. Plants do not fade till they attain a certain age, which varies according to the species and according to circumstances but this period is deferred in proportion to the slowness of the growth of the plant and the time it is destined to live. For instance, herbs fade on the first year of their existence. Some do not fade until the second year. Most shrubs only die in the second, third, or even fourth year, and in trees this phenomenon is more tardy. A certain degree of heat is necessary to effect inflorescence, and it is remarked that the same plant begins to fade sooner in warm countries than in cold. It sometimes even happens in the latter that certain plants, if they can live at all, never fade. Too much moisture and superabundant nourishment by favoring the development of the leaves and stem often contribute to retard inflorescence. When a perennial plant has begun to blossom, it ordinarily produces new flowers every year at about the same period. Sometimes, however, this periodical return of inflorescence does not occur with the same regularity, and when vegetation is injured by any circumstance, it may have barren years. It has also been observed that when a tree has borne a great deal of fruit one year, and retained it late, inflorescence is feeble or entirely wanting the succeeding year. And thus it is in the south of Europe, when the olives are left late upon the trees, the harvest fails the following year. Sometimes, on the contrary, the periods of inflorescence are more approximated, and in warm and humid autumns, we occasionally see plants flowering a second time. The period of the year at which inflorescence takes place is generally definite for each species of plant, 
but varies a little according to the temperature and other atmospheric circumstances. For example, in the climate of Paris, which is similar to that of the Middle States, the black hellbor flowers in January, the hazel tree and willow in February, the box, the yew, the almond, the peach, the apricot, the primrose, the stockjelly flower, in March, the plum, the pine, the ash, the elm, the yoke elm, the hyacinth, the dandelion, etc., in April, the apple, the horse chestnut, the lilac, the cherry, the peony, in May, the linden tree, the vine, oats, wheat, the wild red poppy, larkspur, in June, the violet, the carrot, hemp, lettuce, in July, asters, garden balsams, and water hyssop, in August, ivy, saffron, in September, Jerusalem artichoke, and certain other plants, in October. The table of the different epochs of inflorescence constitutes what botanists have named Flora's calendar. In colder countries, inflorescence is retarded, while in the south it occurs earlier. For example, in Smyrna, the almond flowers in the first fortnight of February, in Germany, in the second half of April, and in Christiania, Sweden, in the first days of June. The expansion or blooming of the flower is almost always effected by the separation of the pieces of the corolla and calyx from above downwards. But there are some in which the floral integuments remain adherent to the summit and separate at the base, as in the vine, for example. The period of the day at which this phenomenon occurs varies in the greatest number of plants, but in some it is fixed, and a series of plants arranged according to the hour at which the flowers blow constitutes what Linnaeus called Flora's clock. For example, at Paris, the bearbind, a species of bindweed, blows between three and four o'clock in the morning. Between four and five, certain of the chicoraceae expand. Between five and six, the convolvulus tricolor appears. About seven, the lettuces, water lilies, etc. About eight o'clock, a species of chickweed. About nine, the umble-flowered marigold. At ten, the ice plant. Towards eleven, the purslane and the star of Bethlehem. About noon, most of the phycoids, fig marigolds. About sunset, the evening primrose. Between six and seven in the evening, the marvel of Peru. Between seven and eight, the privet. And about ten in the evening, a bindweed, which gardeners call a morning glory, because they always find it open when they rise in the morning. When the flower has arrived at a certain period of its development, the pollen formed by the anthers falls upon the stigma, and in this way causes the fecundation of the ovules enclosed in the inferior part of the pistil. Frequently the stamens are inclined towards the pistil, that they may more conveniently deposit the pollen. For example, in the geraniums, the filaments of the stamens are curved so that the anther 
rests upon the stigma, and in the nasturtium the eight stamens are each inclined in turn for eight successive days to deposit the pollen on the pistil in this way, and at other times the species of dust is cast into the air, and borne by the wind to the pistil of the same or of a neighboring flower. It is easy to prove that the action of the pollen upon the pistil is indispensable to the fecundation of the ovules and the production of seeds which are developed in this organ. For example, it is sufficient to cut off the stamens of an hermaphrodite flower to render it sterile, provided it be sufficiently removed from other flowers in which the stamens have not been destroyed. And when we have mutilated a flower in this way, it is sufficient to cast upon its stigma some pollen taken from another flower of the same species to make it produce seeds. In Monesia's plants, that is, having flowers with stamens and flowers with a pistil only on the same stalk, as the maize, it is only necessary to remove the flowers with stamens to prevent the others from producing seeds. And when the plants are diecious, that is, when the stamens and pistils are borne on different stems, the fecundating action of the pollen is still more evident. It has been long known that female date trees do not produce fruit. If they are very distant from trees of the same species bearing flowers with stamens, and in this case they will not bear, if we are not careful to dust over the branches at the time of inflorescence with pollen derived from the male date. This operation is daily practiced on date trees in the east, and during the expedition of the French army in Egypt, the war having prevented the inhabitants of that country from procuring, as usual, flowers with stamens, they were deprived of their harvest of dates. The grains of pollen that are deposited on the stigma meet there with moisture, swell, burst, and permit the escape of the granules contained within. These granules penetrate the spongy tissue of the pistil and descend to the ovules which they are destined to fecundate. If the pollen is moistened before it reaches the stigma, it bursts in the same way, but in that case the granules it contains are lost, and fecundation does not take place. For this reason, nature ordinarily gives to the corolla a form or position that protects the stamens against the action of moisture. When the ovules are fecundated, the flower fades, and all the parts situate above the ovary, or that are not adherent to this organ, as is sometimes the case with the calyx, fall or dry up. But the ovules, as well as the parieties of the ovary, rapidly enlarge and constitute the fruit. Of Fruit We give the name of fruit to the fecundated and increased ovary, and by extension we also understand by this term the floral envelopes which may remain adherent to this organ. The fruit is essentially composed of two parts, namely the ovules or seeds, and the carpels or ovaries which surround them, and for this reason they are called by some botanists the pericarp, from the Greek peri, around, 
and carpos, fruit. These two parts are never wanting, but the pericarp is sometimes so thin and so closely united to the seeds that without a very careful examination we would not believe that it existed at all. A carpal may be compared, as we have said before, to a leaf folded upon itself, that is, the edges rolled inwards towards its midrib, and like it is composed of three layers, namely an external membrane, which represents the epidermis of the inferior surface of the leaf, and in the fruit is named epicarp, from the Greek epi, upon, and carpos, fruit. A middle layer, which is analogous to the parenchyma of the leaf, and is called the mesocarp, from the Greek mesos, the middle, and carpos, fruit, or sarcocarp, from the Greek sarx, flesh, and carpos, fruit, flesh of the fruit. Finally, an internal membrane, or endocarp, from the Greek endon, within, and carpos, fruit, which corresponds to the superior surface of the leaf, also the pericarp, which is nothing but the united or agglutinated carpals, is essentially composed of three layers, namely the epicarp, which occupies the surface of it, the mesocarp, which is more deeply situated, and the endocarp, which lines the lodges or cells in which the seeds are found. The epicarp frequently has upon its surface hairs, glands, and stomata. In general it is thin and flexible, and is often easily detached from the subjacent parts. It is this membrane which forms the velvety skin of the peach and of the plum. When the ovary is infra, that is, whenever it is united with the tube of the calyx, it is this tube which constitutes the epicarp, and then we always distinguish, at its superior part, the teeth or divisions of the limb, or at least a border formed by the remains of this part of the floral envelope, which fades after fecundation. The mesocarp is the parenchymatous portion in which all the vessels of the fruit are united. It frequently presents a very considerable thickness and a fleshy consistence, which has obtained for it the name of sarcocarp, as in the peach, the apricot, the cherry, etc., and constitutes the part we eat. Sometimes the mesocarp is dry and fibrous, as in the almond, or it constitutes the part called the shell, and at other times it is so thin as to be hardly distinguished. The endocarp, which internally lines carpals or ovaries, and constitutes the layer of the pericarp nearest the seed, varies much. In most fruits it is thin and transparent, as in the husk of beans, for example. But at other times it becomes hard and brittle, and forms what is named the stone of the fruit. Each carpal has two edges, one named dorsal, which corresponds to the primary nerve of the appendage, and another called ventral, which results from the agglutination of these two edges to each other, and when the edges of the carpal, in place of being simply joined, are folded inwards, 
they constitute an internal partition which divides the ovarian cell or cavity into two parts the carpels are sometimes single in each flower sometimes more or less numerous and in this last case they may be agglutinated to each other in different ways and constitute compound fruits the appearance of which varies sometimes they are very distinct externally at other times are united with the torus and with the calyx in such a manner that no trace of external union can be seen and constitute a simple fruit in general the cells of different carpels united into a single mass are perfectly distinct and the compound fruit consequently presents as many cells as there are carpels but sometimes the carpels are not closed along their ventral edge and then the cells of all these organs communicate with each other and constitute a single cavity of which the circumference only is more or less lobed and it also happens sometimes that the partitions which separate the neighboring cells are in part destroyed by the progress of maturation and all the cells of a compound fruit are united into a single cavity the center of which is occupied by a species of column formed by the remains of the ventral edge of the carpels thus united often one or more carpels abort and leave no trace of their existence finally not only may the carpels of the same flower be united to each other but sometimes those of neighboring flowers approximate and become agglutinated in a single mass and thus constitute what is termed an aggregate fruit figs and the cones of the pine tree are composed in this way at the period of their maturity fruits present still other important differences some are indehiscent from the latin in not and dehiscere to gape wide open that is they do not open spontaneously others on the contrary open of themselves and are called for this reason dehiscent in simple fruits the opening generally takes place at the agglutinated edges of the carpel or by this and the dorsal edge at the same time so that the fruit is divided into two pieces called valves in the compound fruits we sometimes see the different carpels separate and fall singly then remain closed or open in the same way as the simple fruits sometimes also the back of each cell is torn without the carpels being separated the differences that we have pointed out in the conformation of fruits and the principal variations of form which they present have led botanists to class them as follows classification of fruits all fruits are included in three classes the first class is composed of the simple or apocarpus fruits formed of a single carpel or of several free carpels the first division of this class includes what are termed dry fruits having a thin pericarp and being but slightly furnished with juices and generally contain only a small number of seeds this division contains two varieties the first are the indehiscent simple fruits under this head we have the three following forms caryopsis fruit monospermatic from the greek 
monos, single, and sperma, seed, having one seed, an indehiscent, the pericarp of which is very thin and intimately connected with the seed, as wheat, barley, rice, oats, etc. Achene, or achenium, from the Greek a, without, and kyno, I gape. Fruit monospermatic and indehiscent, the pericarp of which is distinct from the proper covering of the seed, as in hemp, sunflower, etc. Gland or nut. Fruit, unilocular, from the Latin unus, one, and loculus, partition. Seed vessel not separated into cells. And therefore monospermatic, from the constant abortion of all the ovules except one. The coriaceous, or woody pericarp of this one, presents at its summit vestiges of the limb of the calyx, and is enclosed, either partly or entirely, in a kind of involucrum called cupule, as in the oak. The second variety of the first division, of the first class, contains the three following dehiscent fruits, follicula, little bag, follicle, fruit ordinarily membranous, opening longitudinally on the ventral surface, as the larkspur, senna, etc., legume or husk, fruit which is ordinarily membranous, elongated, and compressed in form, opens longitudinally, both by the ventral and dorsal structure at the same time, as peas, beans, etc. Lomentum, fruit similar to a pod or legume, but contracted at different points, forming partitions which result from the cohesion of the two faces of the carpal, and opening by transverse sections as in cassia fistula. The second division of the first class contains fleshy fruits, having a thick, pulpy, and succulent pericarp. They are never dehiscent. It contains the two following forms. Droop. Fruit fleshy, enclosing a nut internally, the mesocarp being fleshy and very thick, and the endocarp coriaceous, or bony, as the peach, the apricot, the cherry, etc. Nut. Fruit similar to a droop, but the mesocarp is less thick, and constitutes what is called a shell, as the fruit of the almond. Sometimes these fruits, in place of being isolated, are grouped together on a fleshy gymnophore, so as to resemble a compound fruit, as in the strawberry and raspberry. The second class is composed of fruits that are compound or syncarpus, from the Greek sun, with, and carpos, carpal or fruit. They are formed of several carpels of the same flower agglutinated together. The fruits of the first division of the second class are free, not being united to the calyx or paragon through the medium of the torus. The first variety contains the two following dehiscent fruits, siliquae or siliqua, fruit dry analogous to a legume but bilocular, from the Latin bis, two, 
and loculus, partition, and having the seeds attached upon the two edges of the partition in each cell, as the cabbage, rose, etc. Capsule, fruit, dry, formed of two or more carpels, united together, and opening in different ways, but not bivalve, as the poppy. The second variety of the first division of the second class consists of the following indehiscent fruit. Hesperidae, orange, fruit, flesh, composed of a common epicarp, and several cells formed by the endocarp of different carpels, and filled with a sort of pulp, as the orange, citron, etc. The fruits of the second division of the second class are adherent, being united to the calyx or paragon through the medium of the torus. The first variety of this division contains fleshy or pulpy fruits, palm or apple, fruit composed of several indehiscent carpels with a cartilaginous or bony pericarp, completely enveloped by a fleshy indehiscent calyx to which they are agglutinated, as the apple, pear, medlar, etc. Melanide or pepo, fruit, unilocular, formed of several indehiscent carpels, with edges not enfolded, and enclosing numerous seeds surrounded by a pulp, as melons, gourds, etc. Berry, fruit multilocular, indehiscent, semi-fluid internally, as gooseberries, etc. The second variety includes dry fruits and certain adherent capsules, etc. The third class is composed of fruits that are aggregated or polyanthocarpus, from the Greek polus, many, anthos, flower, and carpos, fruit, fruit from many flowers. Because these fruits are formed by the approximation or agglutination of the fruits of many flowers, the three following are placed in this class. Cone, an assemblage of sessile fruits concealed at the base of convex scales formed by bracts, or by a ligneous pericarp, as the pine, savin, etc. Cycone, an assemblage of very small fruits, analogous to droops, enclosed in a fleshy concave receptacle, as figs. Soros, an assemblage of fruits attached to a single body by means of their floral envelopes, which are fleshy and united so as to resemble a mammillated berry, as the mulberry, etc. Of seeds, the seeds, which during the early period of their development are called ovules, are produced in the interior of the cells of the carpal or ovary along the ventral suture of this organ. That part of the carpal from which the seeds spring is named the placenta or trophosperm, from the Greek trepho, I nourish, and sperma, seed, seed nourisher. And the stalk or thread by which the seeds are attached to it we call the funicula, Latin little cord, or podosperm, from the Greek pos, in the genitive, podos, foot, and sperma, seed, seed foot or seed stalk.
The funicula, in general, resembles a little pedicle, and its extremity is expanded sometimes around the seed, so as to envelop it more or less, and constitute what is named the aril, arillus. Sometimes this expansion of the funicula is thick and fleshy, sometimes thin and membranous, its forms vary considerably. In the nutmeg tree, for example, the aril forms a fleshy lamina of a bright red, divided in shreds which envelop the nutmeg, and constitutes the spice called mace. It is to be remembered that the aril is found only in those plants that have a monopetalous corolla. The seed itself is the part of the perfect fruit contained in the interior of the carpel, and encloses the body which is destined to become the new plant. The point by which it adheres to its funicula generally has the appearance of a small scar or cicatrix, and is called the helum. Finally, the seed is composed of two series of organs, namely the accessory parts and the essential parts. The accessory parts of the seed are divided into spermiderm, from the Greek sperma, seed, and derma, skin, or episperm, from the Greek epi, upon, sperma, seed, and the albumen, the essential part is called the embryo. The spermiderm, or skin, of the seed is sometimes a simple membrane, and sometimes a covering composed of two or even three coats. The nutritious vessels of the seed, which come from the trophosperm, ramifying the thickness of this seed covering, and we usually perceive near the center of the helum a minute hole, which gives them a free passage. The albumen, also called perisperm, from the Greek peri, around, and sperma, seed, or endosperm, from the Greek endon, within, and sperma, seed, the albumen, is a body intermediate between the spermiderm and the embryo, which surrounds the latter, embryo, and ordinarily constitutes a depot of nutritive matter. In general, it is formed of a kind of cellular tissue, in which is found the fecula, as in wheat. At other times it encloses fatty matter, as in the castor oil plant, palma christi, Frequently it is very thin, and sometimes it is entirely wanting. The embryo, or essential part of the seed, is the rudiment of the new plant which the seed is destined to produce. In plants unprovided with albumen, or perisperm, the embryo constitutes a single kernel, or almond, and fills the spermiderm. In this case we call it an epispermatic embryo because it is covered immediately by the episperm, or an internal layer of the spermiderm. But in plants that are provided with an albumen, the kernel is composed of the latter, united to the embryo. In this instance, it is termed an endospermatic embryo. In this latter case, the position of the embryo may vary considerably. Sometimes it is simply applied upon the point of the surface of the albumen, which presents for its reception a little pit, fosset, as in the grain of wheat, or it may be rolled under the albumen so as to envelop it more or less completely.
it is then said to be extra. At other times it is entirely enclosed in the interior of the albumen, and then takes the name of intra-embryo, as in the castor oil seed. We distinguish in the embryo, that is in the young plant, which is still enclosed in the seed, three principal parts, the radical, the plumule, and the cotyledons. The radical is the young root, which before germination is always simple, but by development it is more or less divided, and constantly tends toward the center of the earth. The plumule, or young stem, is sometimes scarcely visible before germination, at other times it is as long as the radical, with which it is inferiorly continuous. By development it becomes elongated in a direction contrary to that of the root, and consequently it always tends to rise. We distinguish in it two parts, namely the stemule and the gemule, situate one above the other below the cotyledons. The cotyledons are lateral appendages which represent the first leaves. They are almost always thick and fleshy in plants unprovided with albumen, but thin and membranous in endospermatic seeds. Their use seems to be to furnish the young plant with the first alimentary matter, and their number is various. Sometimes there is but one, and at others there are two or more. Plants whose seeds contain only a single cotyledon are named monocotyledons, from the Greek monos, single, and cotyledon, seed lobe. Those whose seeds contain two or more cotyledons are named dicotyledons, from the Greek dis, two, and cotyledon, seed lobe. The annexed figure represents the section of a seed of a monocotyledon in process of germination, showing the perisperm, the summit of the single cotyledon, the base of the cotyledon forming a sort of tube. At the lower part of the base we see the plumule, which sets upon the radical. Figure 125 represents the same seed further advanced in germination after the appearance of the plumule or young stem. When the seeds are ripe, or a short time afterwards, they separate from the plant. Sometimes the fruit opens spontaneously to permit their escape. At other times they are detached without its opening, and the pericarp is sown entire, or in part, with the seed. Most seeds fall upon the surface of the ground, and nature resorts to various means to secure their dispersion. Sometimes they are surmounted by a little plume which takes the wind. At other times they are furnished with wings, so as to be readily carried to a distance. They are often conveyed to great distances by the currents of rivers, or of the sea, and occasionally their dissemination is effected in a still more singular manner, for it frequently happens that birds eat fruits, the seeds of which they do not digest, but afterwards discharge at some more or less distant place, where they germinate and grow. The number of seeds produced by most plants is so considerable that if every seed germinated, the product of some square leagues of land would be equivalent, according to several calculations, to the vegetation of the whole world. For example, 
160,000 seeds have been counted on a single stalk of tobacco, and 629,000 on an elm. But this seeming prodigality on nature's part is only a wise precaution against the numerous causes of destruction to which they are exposed. Of Germination The term germination is applied to the series of phenomena that a seed presents in effecting the development of the embryo it contains. Germination cannot take place except under a concurrence of circumstances dependent on the seed itself and external influences. The seed must be ripe, enclose a complete embryo, and not be too old. There are some seeds that retain the faculty of germinating for a very long time. Wheat and beans enjoy this property for sixty and even a hundred years, while coffee, on the contrary, loses it in a very short time. Some, when protected from contact with air, preserve their germinative faculty for a long period. On the other hand, the seed must be subject to the action of certain external agents, the chief of which are water, heat, and air. Water is indispensable to germination. It acts by penetrating the substance of the seed, by softening its envelopes, by causing the embryo to swell, and by bringing about in the endosperm or in the cotyledons chemical changes which render the substances deposited in their parenchyma from the Greek perikuin to strain through the spongy and cellular tissue of organized bodies fit to nourish the young plant. Heat is also necessary. Below a certain temperature the seed remains inactive. Too much heat destroys the vegetative power. The extreme limits are between 32 and 120 degrees of Fahrenheit's thermometer. The presence of air is as indispensable to the germination of seeds, or at least to their development, as it is to the respiration of animals. It acts through the means of the oxygen it contains. Seeds placed in contact with this gas are stimulated in their germination. Light, on the contrary, hinders or at least retards it much. The first phenomenon observed in germination is the swelling of the seed and the softening of its envelopes. The time at which the latter burst vary in different plants. The manner of this rupture is either regular or irregular. From this moment we observe the embryo, which is at this period termed plantule, diminutive plant, begin to develop we observe its two extremities which constantly grow in opposite directions. The gemule, called the ascending caudex, is directed towards the air and light. The radical, or descending caudex, tends to bury itself in the ground. The substance of the cotyledons liquefies. It becomes milky and serves for the nourishment of the plantule. The perisperm undergoes an analogous transformation and appears to perform the same function, while the radical, by penetrating the earth, gives rise to delicate little ramifications. The stemule lengthens and rises up the cotyledons. The gemule is at once free and uncovered. The little leaves of which it is composed expand, increase in size, become green, and begin to draw from the atmosphere 
a portion of the fluids which nourish the young plant. The act of germination is now at an end, and nutrition goes on, as we described it, when speaking particularly of this function. All seeds do not require the same period of time for their germination. For instance, certain cresses germinate in two days, the turnip and bean in three days, lettuce in four, the melon in five, most of the grasses in six or seven days, the hyssop in a month, the peach in a year, and rose-tree in two years. What we have hitherto said of fructification relates entirely to cotyledonous plants, and we have still to say a few words of what takes place in acotyledons, from the Greek a without and cotyledon seed-lobe, in which we find neither flowers nor seed nor embryo. The class of acotyledons comprises all plants which are unprovided with true organs of generation, that is, stamens and pistils. On this account they are named cryptogamous, from the Greek kryptos, concealed, and gamos, marriage, or agamos, from the Greek a, without, and gamos, marriage, and are produced through the means of corpuscles analogous in their structure and development to the bulbils or bulblets of certain perennial plants. These corpuscles, minute bodies, are named sporules or seminules. They are contained in envelopes called conceptacles, and are variously placed either in the interior of the plant itself, or, but more rarely, on its exterior in the form of tubercles as we shall see when we come to speak of the history of these plants. End of section 7